thousand enough of those get infected so you can then see is the uh the infection rate uh lower in the immunized people than in the ones who got the placebo and see that one tells us that it's effective if you get fewer infections and it also tells you if it's safe and it, it also tells you if there are some side effects whether those are really due to the vaccine or they just you know randomly occurred see so uh, they, and then and finally when they roll it out they first have a limited uh, it roll out to start immunizing and then they and they with a with a sort of a limited approval and then when it looks like it's really working and so forth they, they have a formal approval and finally after it's all out in distribution uh, they have post-marketing surveillance where they continue looking at people who get it to see if there might still be things we missed showing up. So they continue to look. So when people realize that, they, they really don't have anything to worry about here. You know, this week, uh, and I know there are 11 different, I think, clinical trials underway on the COVID-19 vaccine. No, no, there, Just, uh, there, there are 52 vaccines in human trials and 87 more in preclinical work. There are wow. a, a dozen or so that are either in or approaching phase three trials. I think okay. that's what you were referring to. That, yeah, there, good. Thanks for there's correcting There's a ton me. out there. I mean, everybody's, all, all the major labs are coming up with, because you, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. It could be the, the front runner will come out there and and when it gets out in the public it might still fail and so you got to have more coming we've got to have the reserves back there coming up right well you know on the on the one that came out where Pfizer's working with this German company and not trying to be anything other than realistic not being negative you know, it was published more in kind of a news release and not a oh, peer review, a, not yeah, a peer a review release. journal. No, not at all. So, yeah, and it's if, still it's still in preliminary. The trial isn't over; they're still testing, and so um, you know, I kind of think that they were releasing this preliminary information because Moderna, the front runner, is already through basically through with their phase three trial and probably ready to to go for a an approval and maybe start distributing uh you know later this at the end of the year and i think the pfizer people wanted to say wait a minute hold on we're we're here <laughs> so it it's 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 a competition and that's all part of the the game in the moderna do you know is is it a two dose or one dose I, uh, I believe both of them are two dose. You know, right. I need to check that. Let's see. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Let's also, assume they have, store, they have storage requirements that are difficult. You know, at minus seventy degrees, so you're gonna have to have them, and they're gonna have to store them in some very deep freezes. And once you take them out, they only last for so long. So all those are going to be the logistics, but I'm sure they've figured that out, how they're going to deliver it. So that probably wouldn't be a problem. So let me ask you a layman's question, Dr. Haley, and I know as a physician you're going to laugh at me, but when you pull a vaccine out of minus 70 degrees, you can't just immediately inject that into a human, right? Don't you have to wait for it to get to 
room temperature? Yeah, you get, yeah, oh yeah, right. And and also you you can't just take it out of a minus seventy degrees uh, freezer and and inject it because you got to get it to the person. So you're gonna have to get it out into where the injections are being given, which are all over the place. But I think the thing once they once they take them out of the free deep freeze, I think they they last for maybe a couple of weeks. But under cold condition, you know, you keep them in probably dry ice or something, and then thaw them before you give them. But again, that's probably I'm sure that's all worked out by the companies, and it's they've got a, a good plan. So we just we just need to be patient and wait to see what it is. You know, based on your experience, especially working with CDC, I can remember as a young child, about seven or eight years old, standing in line with my parents at a fire station to get a sugar cube with the polio vaccine on it. How do you think, I'm not talking about first responders, healthcare workers, do you have any idea how we would distribute this to the public? Yeah, I think these are injections of one type or another. Now, you know, injection technology has greatly uh, exploded recently with all kinds of new injection techniques. Um, and I think the companies may well have their own injection uh, apparatus that they're going to send along with the vaccine. So, in fact, one of the logistical concerns uh, early on, so several months ago, was would we have enough syringes to, you know, because if you, you have, uh, you know, 300 million doses of vaccine, you're going to need a lot of syringes. Have we manufactured all those yet? And at that time, the answer was no. And at that, that might be the limiting factor. But, I, again, I think the companies have their own apparatus, uh, injection apparatus that they're going to distribute with the vaccine, but I'm, I'm not sure of the details. You know, you mentioned earlier about, when you get into the uh, clinical trials and you're in the third phase and you, then you have to look at the safety data, then you have to make sure you've got all the accurate data. Let's assume you went through all of that and you really did have a vaccine that approached the 90% plus efficacy that Pfizer is claiming. That's pretty darn good, isn't it? Isn't that kind of oh. like as good as the measles? Yes, I mean that's like uh, the childhood immunizations we have. You know, when you get a your uh, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, other vaccines, as you know, in childhood, you know, you expect that's going to be close to 100 uh, percent. You know, for for most of your life. But on the other hand, think of the flu vaccine. You know, that's in a good year, that's 60 or 70 percent effective, and in a bad year, it's maybe 50 percent effective. And so uh, not all vaccines are the same. And this COVID virus is a pretty tough one to vaccinate against. Uh, you know, there, there are some other coronaviruses in the same family that, are, that just cause the common cold. And there, there's never been a good vaccine against any of those. Also, the SARS and uh, MERS, these are earlier incarnations of this coronavirus that, that's deadly. Uh, we never really developed good vaccines against those, although those were controlled before the vaccine work really got fairly far advanced. And for COVID, of course, these vaccines have been produced in in record time. I mean, I think the 
this, the quickest a vaccine's ever been produced ever is about like four or five years, and usually it takes ten or ten years or so to develop a good vaccine, and and occasionally it's it's been twenty or twenty five or thirty years, and so to to have a vaccine in eight months from start to to distribution would be just a phenomenal thing. But again, the technology has advanced so much and the the clever scientific advances that have produced this are just mind boggling. When I look at the, the using these uh, messenger RNA vaccines, which I think both of these uh, leaders right now are, what this is doing, you're not injecting the virus into the person's arm or not even a protein that's taken from the virus. You're injecting the RNA that gives the signals that makes the virus. You're you're injecting a little piece of RNA into the person that produces the protein in your arm that you then make your the antibodies the immunity to. And that's much safer to do, uh, much less likely to have reactions. And it's something that you can produce in mass quantities much faster than you can in, for example, in the old flu virus years ago, they used to to grow up the virus to produce large quantities of it in eggs. They would inject it into eggs and then let it grow up in there and then harvest the, the uh, antibodies out of the eggs. Now, you can imagine that takes months and months and months to produce the vaccine and whereas these new technologies can be uh, produced uh, in mass quantities very rapidly. So it's an amazing development. Do you think as we look, and you you really triggered a thought when you were talking about how this would just be phenomenal if it's done in eight months. I understand business plans. I understand companies. I understand they need to make a profit. Do you see in the future where drug manufacturers, especially working on vaccines, could joint venture or collaborate so they could share best practices rather than do this in a competition silo? Oh, probably not. (laughs) You know, this, you know, what, one of the marvels of America and the free world is that the free enterprise system engenders this competition. And that competition, I think, is very important in stimulating the innovations that that, uh, drive amazing feats like we're seeing now. And so I think competition will remain the name of the game here, and I think we should welcome that. I think the key thing that people need to realize, though, is the role of the federal government in all of this. You know, there, there's a lot of backbiting about, oh, we don't need so much government and all of that. that. That's a terrible mistake. If you look back in history, virtually all the great accomplishments of the United States have had a very strong role from the federal government. And, for example, in this particular one, of course, all this development has been funded by the federal U.S. federal government or uh, a German government or whatever, but mostly the U.S. government. And right now, the amazing difference in this particular circumstance is that, you know, we're going to have a, a virus tested with a phase three trial probably very soon and maybe approved. Well, wouldn't it be sad then to have to wait six months to produce enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody. Well, several months ago, the federal government picked the winners and have picked successfully so far, and they went ahead and and put several billion dollars into getting them their manufacturing already going. 
So there are already plants producing these vaccines that look like they're going to be effective so that as soon as they're proven and approved by the FDA, the production's already going to be far along. So uh, we, we may well have millions of doses by the first of the year. So the role of the federal government is must not be underestimated. We must continue to keep a very effective government that can respond to these things because only when we as Americans work collectively through our federal government can we really accomplish things like this. Yeah, that's a good point. As you were discussing testing this, the last time we had you on, you told us some fascinating uh, experiments that had been done with guinea pigs, how they had used guinea pigs, and this was more trying to see as the virus spread, would they contract it or not. Would it make sense to test a vaccine on a guinea pig? Or, as you mentioned earlier, a monkey's better to do that. Oh, yes, and they do, they all do. In other words, uh, in what are called the preclinical studies, the preclinical studies are the ones, the studies you do to test the vaccine and maybe screen a number of vaccines. And you screen these in, in various uh, test tube experiments and then in uh, guinea pigs or the appropriate, maybe in hens or in eggs or whatever, and to screen them to see if you get to, to try, try to pick the, the winning vaccine. And then you go into to, uh, animals and then you finally end up in uh, perhaps in monkeys, which are react much more like humans. Guinea pigs and monkeys have a lot of characteristics uh, similar to humans. And so you tested in those extensively looking for safety and the ability to stimulate the immune system to produce protection. And you do that before you then take put it into the phase one first studies involving a few people. And that way you you don't subject those first few people to a dangerous vaccine or one that's that you already know is going to be futile. You do the animal studies first so that you've got a what looks like a real winner, and then you go into people. Dr. Haley, can you give us a timeline from inception to completion related to vaccines? Yes. In order to make a vaccine that's very safe and very effective in protecting you, the pharmaceutical companies produce maybe several vaccines and then they will screen those in animal models and then test them in monkeys, for example, to be sure they've got something that's safe and that will stimulate the immune system. And then they go into a series of trials in humans. The phase one trial is just a beginning safety and and, uh, effectiveness trial in a small number of people just to be sure that it's not going to produce some bad side effect and that it will produce antibodies that will protect you. And then if that's successful, they go to a phase two trial that's an expanded trial where you go to hundreds of people that also include groups like children and elderly people as well as uh, adult regular adults uh, just to be sure there's not some surprises in these special groups and you look for any side effects and look to be sure it's 
producing protection. And then if that works, then you go into the big phase three trial, which is the final trial. And there you're doing tens of thousands, maybe 30,000 or 40,000 people. And you randomize them into the ones who get the vaccine and another group who gets the placebo. And they, nobody knows which one is which until the end of the trial. Uh, and, and you do that in a situation where out in the, uh, the population where people are getting the infection from time to time. And you, you wait until enough people have the infection and then you can break the code and, and look at the groups and see uh, an effective vaccine would have virtually no side effects, no serious side effects, and it would have protected people so that you have very few infections in the ones who received the vaccine, and most of the infections would have occurred in people who got the placebo. And if that works, then you've got a, a successful vaccine that can be approved by the FDA after the scientists look at all the data. And then you have a limited approval, and they use it out in the population. And then you get formal approval. And finally, after it's out in distribution, they maintain post-marketing surveillance. So they continue to monitor it to be sure they don't find some bad, rare side effects that could only be picked up later. But that's, And usually that takes years to do to get through all that. But it, it's been accomplished this time in, in just eight or ten months. You know, Dr. Haley, I was just checking the numbers, and we're in for a big surge here, it looks like, in North Texas. We're currently running about 93.8% of the COVID-19 patients in our hospitals that we were running at the very high point back in the middle of July, and it looks like the community spread continues is that what your numbers are showing? Yeah, that's what we're seeing, and our uh, very sophisticated computer modeling people are confirming that, that. That we It looks like this is a big third wave that's finally hitting. We've been worried about that, and it's finally coming. You know, we've had three. This is the third wave. The first two waves, the first one back in when the thing first began in March, and then the one that happened in the, in the middle of the summer, uh, both of those, they took off very fast. And once it started going, it just shot up like straight up, where in about three weeks you went from maybe a couple of hundred cases a day up to maybe 1,600 cases a day. I mean, it was just very rapid in three weeks. Well, uh, you know, in the middle of the summer when we saw that shoot up to, to a huge number, uh, the governor very wisely passed uh, or ordered a statewide masking mandate, and that turns out to have been really critical. And immediately, that huge number of cases began to fall. Uh, within a week, it began to fall, and as everybody was wearing masks and distancing, and then by the end of the summer, it was gone back down to the baseline. It looked like we'd whipped this thing, and it's been staying there. But over the last uh, six or six or eight weeks, we've seen a different thing. We've seen a very slow rise up to a plateau, and it looked like it was going to plateau there. But in the last week, it's just suddenly taking off again like it did before. To our listeners, they may not know. Can you explain to them what an R-naught or an RT factor is before I ask my next question? Uh, yeah, the R naught or the RT as it's called is the reproduction number, and what that basically tells you is how many 
other people does each infected person infect? That is, if I were to get the infection, how many people would I then infect? And things like uh, measles, which are very, very highly infectious, can can have an R naught of about uh, 15 or so, where each case would infect an average of 15 other people. That that's an explosive spread. Well, the coronavirus is not nearly that contagious, but it is more contagious than other things that we see. Uh, it's a, R-naught's about, if you're not doing anything to control it, it's about two and a half to three, and that's really dangerous. But since we got the masking mandate in the state, it's kept below one, dropped it below one, and if, if the R-naught goes below one, that is less than one person infected by every uh, case, then the infection will will go away. The epidemic will, will go away. But if it goes back above one a little bit, that it'll start coming back. Well, now it's about 1.2, and that's a level at which it will it can start exploding, uh, and that's what we're seeing. So we saw the the R naught starting to go up to about uh, 1.1, 1.2 about two weeks ago, and now we're starting to, to to see this explosive spread. Thanks for explaining that. And the reason is, and you you've almost answered my question. I was on a call with some of these very sophisticated modelers this week from across North Texas, people from Fort Worth, Dallas, and uh, so on and so forth, and they all said what you said. They had seen the R-naught bounce around from 1.0 to 1.25, but currently it was in the 1.2 range. If we stay there, we're going to continue to see community spread and potentially more people in the hospital, aren't we? Yes, we are. And let me tell you why the public needs to really be concerned about this. And the reason for it is if you overrun your hospitals, that is if we run out of beds and run out of ICU beds, of course, the first thing the hospitals will do, they they all have a surge plan where they can expand the number of beds, but there's a limit to that. And if you exceed that limit, what that means is the next people who get infected and need to go in the hospital and maybe be in the ICU, there won't be an ICU bed. And the hospital will have to just tell you, I'm sorry, we don't have any beds. You're going to have to go home and take your chances. Now, do you really want to you know, get infected with this germ, be one of the people who has a life-threatening infection, go to the hospital and they say, I'm sorry, uh, there's no room in the end for you. Uh, and that's really what's going to happen. That has happened in a few places. And, you know, El Paso is being overrun right now. And up in the Midwest, up in the Dakotas, uh, their hospital is being overrun. And uh, we don't want that to happen. We've not been overrun. We almost were last summer. But if we don't stop this now, I'll tell you, it's we're going to be overrun. And remember, when you start seeing the cases, these are cases that developed the infection two weeks earlier. So right now, our hospitals aren't overrun. But if we don't react quickly now, two weeks from now, they will be. But we could stop that if we all get busy right now and start wearing a mask and social distancing because that can whip this virus. You know, I think you make some excellent points. And I I know people are tired, but we can coexist with this. If we do what you just said, wear a mask, physical distance, stay out of large crowds, wash our hands, get our flu shot, 
Which brings me to my next question. In your experience, and this is an unfair question because I'm asking you to speculate, I was talking to a critical care physician this week, and he said, Steve, the thing that's worrying me, we got cold weather coming, people are going to be inside, we've got the holidays coming, and traditionally, and he said maybe it won't be a tradition this year, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we generally have a surge of influenza patients, and he's saying, I'm praying that does not happen this year. Do you have any thoughts on upcoming cold weather, flu, etc.? Oh, yes. The good news is it's in our power to prevent that from happening. Texans could prevent that from happening. If everybody would wear a mask when you're around other people, and this year, skip the big family gathering for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Skip it this year. Just this year. We can go back to it next year. And then wear a mask when you're around other people. The COVID epidemic would go down to nothing, and we would absolutely skip flu this year. We would not have flu this year. And the reason we know that is every year when we can always tell how bad our flu epidemic is going to be by uh, looking at at South America and Australia in the Southern Hemisphere, because they tend to get what we're going to get sooner. And this year, the Southern Hemisphere had very few flu infections because they were all wearing masks, okay? Now, that virus, just because they didn't have it, that doesn't mean we're not going to have it because that virus is in circulation, and it's, a, it, it's probably a pretty bad flu virus. But they've showed us that if you wear masks, you, it will not spread around the country. Now, that would be nice for us to do every year at flu season, but I'm not expecting that time. But, but this year we need to do that. And so if you decide to have a, a family gathering, with people who aren't living in your household all the time, you just can't do that unless everybody will stay masked or have an outdoor gathering where people remain distancing, but outdoors is more forgiving. But if you come indoors, you've got to, if you all wear a mask, you're going to be okay. But if you don't, it's going to spread around your family and your grandmother and your mother and your brother are going to be in intensive care unit in Parkland or one of our other hospitals. So, Wearing a mask prevents all of this stuff. You know, that's a good point. In fact, uh, you reiterated what I heard a physician, infectious disease doctor in Fort Worth said. If you have out-of-town family, like grandparents, brothers, sisters coming in, you've got to treat them not like extended, immediate, immediate or extended family. You've got to wear a mask around them, uh, and they've yeah. got to wear a mask around you. You've just got to do it. You- That's right. You know, everybody needs to remember that the person that's going to infect you is not going to be sick. The person who infects you is either a younger person who's who's infected and infectious could infect you, but but they're never going to get symptoms, or it's an older person who is going to get sick tomorrow, okay? But for the two or three days before they work break out with symptoms, they can be highly infectious. So don't think because somebody looks well that they're not going to give you a fatal dose that's going to put you in the intensive care unit and maybe die. That's where almost all the cases come from. I know early on we talked about Dallas County, Tarrant County, Collin County, Denton County, and that was kind of the epicenter. 
But, you know, I've been looking at the numbers. Ellis County and Grayson County are really growing exponentially uh, in their cases and hospitalizations. In fact, Grayson County has run higher inpatient COVID-positive patients in the last four weeks than Denton County. This is spreading throughout rural communities. You bet it is. Uh, we wondered early on, would they be spared? Because, you know, in rural counties, people are further apart. You know, they don't have such population centers. And the epidemic first began and spread around in our big cities. But, you know, back in August, remember there was this big motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, 500,000 motorcycle riders came together in a big con- convention, and they ate in restaurants they, and without masks. They went to bars. They socialized for 10 days virtually without masks. And then they drove out and drove to all the cities, and, but particularly rural communities. And within a few weeks after that, we started seeing uh, COVID breaking out early in South Dakota and then North Dakota, which are still being overrun. And in rural, all those rural areas, because these, you know, the motorcycle riders came back and spread it to all these rural communities. Uh, all over the United States, but particularly in the Midwest, all the way down to, to Texas here. So it's in the rural communities. It's spreading rapidly. And in the rural communities, their hospitals are smaller, fewer intensive care beds, so they're going to be much, much more easily overrun as this thing grows. But we don't have to have that. If we would all mask, this goes away. You know, Dr. Haley, you make great points, and I'm going to stop there and flip it to Thomas, because I want Thomas to tell you he's got two good friends in Houston who have been so cautious, but they let their guard down. Thomas, tell Dr. Haley what happened. Uh, They went on a 12-day RV trip to uh, go look at fall colors, Mm -hmm. and they brought something back to Houston with them that they didn't leave with. Let me read you just a couple of things that she wrote of what they experienced. First of all, really bad headaches, said she never gets them. Bad diarrhea, she never gets that. Super sleepy. Left hip pain, couldn't put weight on her left hip for 24 hours. Heart palpitations, heart racing while sitting, joint pains around the body, dizziness one day, burning eyes, couldn't look at the kitchen lights in her kitchen, had to turn the lights off for two days. No appetite, fatigue, her husband had skin burning, bones felt like they were breaking, skin peeling on fingers, fever on and off, and just major fatigue. Yep, that's a pretty typical case. And then many of those will then progress over a week or so into shortness of breath. Uh, often people describe a, a weight on their chest like somebody set a, a huge weight right on their chest, an anvil right on their chest, and, and severe chest pain. Uh, that then, and then in the most unlucky ones, that progresses where you just can't breathe, can't get enough oxygen in, and you have to go into the intensive care unit uh, and maybe be intubated on a respirator for a while. So yeah, this is a horrible disease. Uh, you know, I've got a, a good friend with a very similar story. This is a person who, a young young man who had a new employee who came to work and he took the employee to lunch 
of course, they took their masks off for lunch, but they sat across the table for a long lunch to talk about the, the job. The next day, that person, that new employee became ill, and then a few days later, my friend became ill, and now he's got shortness of breath and coughing and in bed, and we hope he uh, gets better. But it, that's how it happens. It's, it's so innocent. You, you think life is back to normal. Well, it's not. It's that person who it doesn't look sick, uh, the person who was perhaps riding in the car with your friends, you know, who doesn't look sick, that's the one who gives it to you. What about these articles that I've been seeing lately about psychological issues coming up, even up to 90 or 120 days after people contact COVID? Well, there's no doubt that this virus uh, does attack the brain actually in different ways. I mean, the most unlucky people, it can cause a stroke. It can cause a a blood vessel in the brain to clot, cutting off the circulation to part of the brain. You can have a stroke, and it can be fatal. But in others, the virus itself can do some, some damage. But one of the hallmarks of this virus is that it causes your body to produce a severe inflammatory reaction where your normal inflammatory system just goes wild to kill the virus, but then it doesn't shut off. And that inflammatory thing state can affect your brain and produce inflammation of the brain, even if the virus didn't get up there. The inflammation gets up there. And then that may last for days, weeks, months, and some it may be permanent. And what that does, it gives you that brain fog and difficulty thinking and concentrating, maybe body pain that can be chronic, can be long-term. And so the inflammatory part of this that you're left with can be as bad as the virus itself. So right now where we are, it's on the increase. People are not either aware that it's on the increase or just not doing everything that we can do. And we've got a problem coming is basically what you're telling us. That's correct. And, I, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that a group that appears to be at maybe highest risk are essential workers out there in the economy, particularly construction workers, who can pick this up on the job and then bring it back and infect their family. Because uh, particularly construction workers who work on indoor jobs or, you know, uh, working with, with fellow construction workers and they're working, tearing out uh, insides of a building or finishing the insides of a building, working together in close contact and not thinking, you know, the other person they're working with doesn't look sick, so they're fine. But that person is about to be sick and infects them, and then they go home and give it to their family. And they may be living with grandmother. And grandmother then ends up in the in the ICU or dies. So for people who are living with essential workers who are out there in the population, for the next three or four or five months, when the construction worker comes home, they really need to take care not to expose their family because they can expose their family, produce a fatal infection, even before they start feeling bad. See, that's that's the the deceptive thing about this virus, why it's such a bad actor. So we're sitting here on November 15th. Thanksgiving is just a week and a half away. Christmas, a few weeks after that. You're basically urging people to really take a look at those plans and cancel them. Yes. You really should not get together with family, a large extended family, on this holiday. 
You should not do it now, and you should not do it at Christmas. Right now would be the worst time. Two weeks from now would be the very worst time you could do that because we're going to have a huge amount of infection out in the community. Large numbers of people are going to get it. And if you have family members to your house or you go to their house, we're going to see just an explosion of cases. We're going to overrun our hospitals. And by Christmas, uh, there won't be a bed left in the ICUs in in the city. So we just, you've got to be careful. Do not do that this year. It's only this year. You, this is not forever. We can do anything for, for four months. Then the vaccine will be here, and then this thing will be in the past. You know, I want to say one more thing. Look, it's like the last soldier killed in World War One. You know, there, it's known who that was. Wasn't it ashamed for somebody to be killed on the morning of the armistice? At 11 o'clock, World War One was declared over and the shooting stopped, but there was a, a guy killed in the morning about an hour before the armistice. It would be terrible for you or somebody in your family to die just before the vaccine gets here. Look, put it off. Don't get infected in the next four months, and then you're okay. The people who get infected now, that's the saddest of all. So be careful. Wear a mask and don't gather in groups. Dr. Haley, thank you so much for being with us and sharing great nuggets of information.